Morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. We are in the middle of a series on the book of James, written by Jesus's little brother. And we've entitled this series, A Little Less Conversation, A Little More Action. Because the idea is James, again and again throughout his letter, talks about what our faith looks like in practice. So it's all very well having faith, James says, but we have to see it in action. We need to see faith happen in our day-to-day lives. And this morning, James is talking about what our faith looks like in action as we treat people in the world, but also as we help people. What does our faith look like in action when we treat people in the way that we treat people and in the way that we help people? People And he uses this little example of the rich man and the poor man that comes into church and the rich man's given the prime seat in church and the poor person's told to stand at the back. And before we dismiss that and say we would never do anything like that in this church, in fact, we would never do anything like that in our own lives. Really, the reality is we all treat people differently, don't we? Even when we don't know that we're doing it. I don't know if you know this, but Professor Green lives in Broccoli. You guys know that? And I spot him every now and again, and I go a bit giddy. And not because, to be honest, I probably couldn't name one song um, that he, apart from that newspaper one, read it in the news, uh, the rap about that. Anyway, he's in Broccoli, and uh, I was walking the kids to Hilly Fields um, a couple of months back uh, with the dog, and we were crossing over the road to go into Hilly Fields, and he was coming round the bend in his car, he lives right by Hilly Fields, in a, in a Land Rover. And he stopped and he let me cross and he smiled at me as we crossed the street to Hilly Fields. And I went home to her now and I said, you'll never guess what, never guess it. Professor Green let me cross the road in front of him and he smiled at me. Unbelievable. And I was telling everyone that week, Professor, such a nice guy, such a love, what a love. As though, because he wrote a rap song, maybe two or three, he's got the right to run me over in his Land Rover. People stop for me all the time. I've got like three kids, it's carnage. Like, of course he's going to stop for me. And people often smile at me. Usually they're laughing at me, but he smiled. Anyway, we treat people differently all the time. I had a mate called Ed, who was in the supermarket, and he bumped into David Beckham. And he was so in awe of seeing David Beckham all he could see is the quality of his skin on his face in particular. And all he said to him was, do you mind if I touch your face? Promise you. That's exactly what he said. Nothing else. And um, apparently David didn't. He just walked off. But so would I. Wouldn't we all? We all treat people differently. And it's kind of hardwired into the human condition, isn't it? I don't know where you think human rights came from, this idea that everybody has indelible human rights. We all are treated equally, no matter what race we are, no matter what culture we're from, no matter what our social economic status, no matter if we're rich or we're poor, we're from this place or that place, we know those people, we do this job, we are all equal in the sight of each other. So therefore we have to protect equality. I don't know where you think that came from, but it's been proven now by a historian, his name's Brian Tierney, he's dead now, but he did a lot of his work um, on medieval, history and he has proven now that the idea of human rights didn't happen by accident. Sometimes we think that it's just normal. A part of the culture of humanity is that we believe in human rights but it didn't happen by accident and he's proven that human rights only came about because of Christian jurists in the medieval times 
essentially like thinking about theology and then putting it into practice in the courts. So at the time they were thinking about what it means to be made in the image of God and then they were putting it into practice in their decision making in the courts. So all of us are made in the image of God and therefore all of us are equal in the sight of God and therefore we all have human rights. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. puts it like this. It's a brilliant quote. He says, there's no gradations in the image of God. Every man and woman from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely, he says, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. The reason we have equality, the reason we believe in equality is because we believe that we all are all made in the image and likeness of God. And you see, the problem society has is as it starts to divorce itself from any kind of Christian ethos or morality in the world, it's getting harder and harder to see how we can see that lived out in our culture because we want to believe in this, but we want to reject the kingdom. So if you like, it's a little bit like we want the stuff of the kingdom, we want the equality, we want everybody to be recognised as made in the image of life, but we don't want the king of the kingdom. We don't want this any idea of this Christianity or anything like that because logically when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense to treat each other equally. In fact, if we're all here by chance, if everything's come about as a result of natural selection, survival of the fittest, really you could argue that the opposite is the truth, that we don't need to treat each other equally. In fact, we shouldn't because that's not the point. So where does this come from, this idea that we're all equal? It comes from the fact that we believe, and it's kind of over the, the centuries of Western civilization, rooted in the Christian faith, we believe that we are made in the image and in the likeness of God. We can't divorce those two ideas from each other, which is probably why so often we look into the world and we see hypocrisy. We see lots of people talking a good game, but not acting it out in reality. See, we, we hear a lot about equality in the world, but when we go out into the world, it's very very easy to see the inequality, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's all around us. And this is no different in the church. No different in the church. And what James is challenging us to do this morning, he's saying to us, this should be completely different. Why? Because we believe in the image and the likeness of God. Everybody here is made in the image and the likeness of God. This is why he starts off this whole passage about equality. He says this, he says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. What's he saying there? If you understand the glory of God, then you're not going to show favoritism. Because if you understand how amazing God is, and that word glory there is how important, how significant God is, then you will not show favoritism among each other. He, he kind of talks more about this, extrapolates more from it in James 3, where he talks about the power of the tongue. He says people have this strange thing whereby they declare the glory of God and they speak about how amazing God is with their tongue, but they also curse each other. They break each other down. And he said, this makes no difference because you are made in the image of God. That's kind of his main thought there in James and he's bringing it up here in James 2. If we want to understand the quality, we need to understand the glory of God and we need to understand the fact that every single one of us here is made in the image and in the likeness of God. So on the basis of this, church should be radically different. We shouldn't just talk about equality. We should be acting it out day in, day out because we believe that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. So there's two ways in which James says we should act it out here in our church, family, church, community. Firstly, we need to be glorious in the way that we treat people. We need to be glorious in the way that we treat people. Verses two to four. 
It says this, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What's he saying there? He's saying if we show partiality, if we show favoritism in the church, it is like we have become judges with evil thoughts. And the phrase there really is about judges that take bribes. And the thing I want to say about that is so often with that kind of thing, these things happen behind the scenes, happen in the darkness. They're not necessarily overt things that you can spot really easily. A bit like with judges that take bribes. It happens in the darkness. It happens behind the scenes. It happens just in the everyday things that we do and as we act, as we start to live out our lives. It's not necessarily overt favoritism. For example, um, in Acts 6, there's this uh, moment in the early church where they face this problem and they've got two groups of people. They've got the Hellenistic Jews, who are the Greek-speaking Jews, and they've got the Hebrew-speaking Jews all in one church. And the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews are complaining because they've got the equivalent of our fellowship fund here that gives out money to people who are struggling in the church family. In particular, it was used a lot for widows in the church family who are really struggling they would give out money and the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews were complaining because it seemed like the the favoritism was happening towards the Hebrew-speaking church Jews so the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting access to this money whereas the Greek-speaking widows were going without and there was inequality in the church family and so do you know what the apostles did in order to be able to solve this inequality happening in the church it doesn't necessarily come out in the text unless you know kind of the names that are listed they appoint essentially a separate set a group of leaders to oversee this fellowship fund and when you read the names of those leaders who are supposed to oversee that fund every single one of them is a Greek speaking Jew. So what have they done there? There's an inequality going, inequality going on in their church and what they've done is they've empowered those who are being treated badly in the church family, in the church community. It's a genius way but what that also says about that thing is it, it wasn't necessarily overt, it wasn't necessarily something that was easy to spot, it was something that was just in the prejudices, the way we think, the things that we do, it wasn't necessarily something that they were actively doing on purpose and so in order to combat it as a church the apostles appointed these guys, they empowered those who were being um, kind of favoured, going without as a result of it. So, so often we have to think in these sorts of ways in order to be able to make sure that there's equality in the church community. How do we do that? Well, there's lots of different ways we need to do that. We need to do that in our local area. We need to do that in our church. But crucially, we need to do it personally as well, in and of ourselves, don't we? So what does that look like in our church? Well, I don't know if you remember, but we've been talking about this a lot over the last couple of years. But when we started the church or or grafted the church here three years ago, at St. Peter's. There was a group that came from a central London church in Malibone, a group of young adults that came from church in King's Cross, and they joined an existing congregation here at St. Peter's. And the existing congregation uh, were 50% uh, white people and then 50% black and ethnic minority church family members. And the grafting group that came in were entirely essentially young white middle class one particular people group and what happened was as soon as the graft happened there was this inequality that happened in the church as a result 
And because of that inequality, some people of the original crowd in the church felt like they didn't belong anymore. It felt like this wasn't their home, this wasn't their family anymore as a result. And so we have been working over the last three years in different ways in which we can start to right that wrong that had happened. And the thing is, it wasn't an overt thing. It wasn't as though coming from the church before, we were like, well, let's make sure we bring a particular people group who look like us, who speak like us, who think like us, and make sure that that's the dominant culture at St. Peter's. We weren't thinking like that at all. The reality is it just happened. And so therefore we had to start thinking creatively about how we undo that. Because the whole point of church is that everybody should be able to feel a part of the family. It's why one of our values here is about family. So the, kind of one of our main values is that we believe that church should be a diverse family where we can be fully known, we can be unconditionally loved, and we can become who we're called to be. Fully known means that they know us in the entirety of who we are, not who we think we should be so as to fit in and conform, or not who we think other people think we should be, but fully known in who we are. Unconditionally loved, no matter what we bring to the party. Become who we're called to be, not who other people think we're called to be. Become the people that God has created to be so that we have a beautiful diversity in unity. That is the whole point of the church being diverse and the church being like family. So we have to start to think creatively about how, sure, how we make sure that that happens here at St. Peter's. One of the things we're doing at the moment is Nita, very kindly, is doing an audit of our church at the moment. And so she's come to staff meetings. She's spoken with the different staff members here at church. And one thing we're doing is for every single department in the church, every ministry area in the church, we're doing an audit as to how um, kind of diverse the culture is. Essentially, when people come in through the door or enter or come to a ministry here at St. Peter's or take part in anything, are they welcome no matter what race they're from, no matter what culture they're from, no matter what social economic group they're from? Do they feel like they can be a part of the family? And we need to be intentional about how we make sure that that happens here at church. And so one of the things we're doing is we're doing a really in-depth look at it. And then Nita's going to recommend some different ways we can make it more welcoming and more like a family here at St. Peter's as a result. So we need to do it in our church. That then needs to spill out into our area. Because one of the things that I, people talk to us about again and again here in Broccoli is the fact that it's being gentrified. And gentrification really is something that is displacing people who fell on the margins before and now feel even more on the margins as a result. Um, someone was telling me recently that um, a coffee shop, which I won't name, but a coffee shop only employs a certain type of person with a certain type of skill. And they tend to be people that don't live in this area. So this coffee shop has started as a result of gentrification in the area and the business has boomed. And this person challenged the coffee shop owner and said, why aren't you training up local people to serve coffee in your coffee shop? Why is it that you're importing people from other places around London who look like you, talk like you, think like you, to serve coffee like you? Why aren't we training up local people? people here. And one of the things I think as a church we need to get really good at doing is making sure that we are a part of the solution to gentrification, not a part of the problem. That this can be a subculture within the culture of Broccoli where everybody feels welcome here, where everybody feels like they can bring themselves, they can be fully known, they can be unconditionally loved and they can become who they're called to be, where we support each other in being family. But of course, really, if we're honest, that starts in the heart, doesn't it? This can only really happen if we start to deal with the personal favoritism that we know is just a part of the human condition. 
that we do all the time. And again, I'm not saying it's overt. I'm not saying we actively think this way. It's just a subtle part of the culture in which we live where favoritism happens left, right and center. And it's going to affect us. We're going to be affected by it, which is why we need to keep coming back to God and asking him to reveal to us prejudices in our own life that we need to be aware of so we can repent of it and we can turn in the opposite direction and we can show love and impartiality and no favoritism. So we need to be glorious in the way that we treat people, verses two to four. Second thing James says, uh, as those made in the image of God, understanding that we are all made in God's image and likeness. Second thing, we need to be glorious in the way that we help people. So the verse 12 here, it says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over Judgment. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. How are we glorious in the way that we help people? We become a people who show mercy. Now, there's two different kind of ways, interpretations of mercy in the New Testament. There's the more general sense of mercy, which is about kindness and it's about forgiveness and it's about being kind and and nice to people essentially, which is more general. But there's a very specific version of mercy in the New Testament, which really is all about attending to physical needs. And so, for example, um, when Jesus is, these two blind men in the Gospels call out to Jesus and they say, son of David, have mercy on us. They're not asking Jesus to be kind to them. They're asking for Jesus to heal them because they can't see. In the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, many of you will know that. Jesus says at the end, he says, who do you think has shown uh, mercy to the person who is in need? And the guy answers, well, it's the, the guy who practically took him in and paid for the place for him to stay and treated him well. There's another sense, a specific sense of mercy in the New Testament, which is all about attending to physical needs. So what's the context here for us in James? Well, the context, and you have to read a little bit on, but really there's enough there in verses two and three. But straight after he talks about mercy triumphing over judgment, He says this, 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? We need to be glorious in the way that we show mercy. And that's not just kind words. It's not just being nice to people. It's attending to their physical needs. It's looking after people. This is why something like Love Broccoli is so important here at church. So if you don't know about this, we run something called Love Broccoli, which is really just an umbrella term for all the different things that we do in the community, so as to show God's love to everybody in Broccoli. And the idea is that we show both the love and the power of God. So yes, we're going to offer to pray for people. Yes, we're going to invite people to church. Yes, we're going to tell people about Jesus. But first and foremost, we're going to love people really well. And by that, I mean, we're going to attend to their physical needs. We're going to meet the needs of our community, which is one of the things that the food bank does incredibly well. There's a couple of new things that are springing up, which are really good fun at the moment. Um, I don't know if you know Rob. Rob, are you here this morning? I don't know if Rob's here. 
Rob's not here, but we've just got a bit of funding um, and applied for some funding. I'm going to start an allotment at the back of the Vicarage Garden and Rob's going to run it. Rob, Rob um, is a recovering addict. He, he's very honest about it. He's absolutely amazing man of God. And he's going to run this allotment and he's going to bring people alongside him so as that they can start to run this allotment with him. And I think that's going to be a beautiful ministry that's going to spring up out of this church as a result. There's another um, thing bubbling under the surface. Emma, you had a dream, didn't you, about... Um, Use local use coming and dropping knives um, at the front of church, wasn't it? Was it at the front of church? Doors of church, yeah. And straight after Emma had that dream, the next Sunday, um, Jason, are you here? Jason turns up. Jason um, has run a ministry for many, many years helping with youth violence. The day after that, I got an email in my inbox from a local charity run by Ben Lindsay called Power the Fight, which we support here, about training for churches so as to help with youth violence. And it just felt like God was saying to us one thing after another, you need to now start moving into this area with Love Brocky. This is what you need to be doing next. And I guess the reason I'm using those two examples is partly because I think sometimes when we think about helping people in a glorious way when we think about attending to physical needs we can get overwhelmed really quickly because the amount of need out there is overwhelming isn't it like you just need to walk out your door and you just realize in our own strength we can't do this there's too much need out there but the key thing I want to say to us individually but also as a church is we have to follow the Holy Spirit when we do this we have to make sure that we're doing what we see our father doing There's a beautiful story in the Gospels where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and it says that there's a multitude of people who are paralysed and sick and they're sitting by this pool because in those days they believe that when the pool started bubbling, if they got in, they would get healed. And it says that Jesus walked past everyone, the multitude there of sick people and he goes to one person and he heals that one person. And then a couple of stories later, Jesus says this, one of the best statements I think in the Gospels, by myself I can do nothing. I only do what I see the Father doing. And I think that's a beautiful example of how we are supposed to live out meeting the needs in our community. Because by ourselves, we're not going to be able to do much. It's going to be a drop in the ocean. There's too much need out there. However, if we are able to follow the Spirit, if we can follow what God's already doing, then we're going to see Broccoli and South East London transformed as a result of what God's doing in and through us. So we need to be glorious in the way that we help people. And this is out there, it's in the church. We have something here called the Fellowship Fund that those in the church family, if you're in need, you can apply to anonymously and we give money um, for particular times of need. But really, it's personal as well, like the last one. Really, what we want here is a culture of generosity amongst us, whereby anybody in need in our church family has their needs met, not just by applying to a fund that we all give to, but through relationship. That as we get to know each other, as we truly act like family, which is what the treating each other properly, gloriously is all about, as we start to do that, we start to identify the needs among us personally. And there's a culture of it in our church, and therefore then we start meeting each other's needs personally. So it's not just all done for a central fund, but it's done personally as well. Okay, so... We've got to be glorious in the way we treat people. We've got to be glorious in the way that we help people. How are we supposed to do this? Like, what do we need to do in order to get better at this as a church? Because that's where we want to move to. Well, firstly, we need to understand the gospel. Understand the gospel. Verse 5, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? What's he saying 
there. Essentially, he's saying the gospel is the great leveler. We talk a lot here about the ladder of religion. I don't know if you've heard us use this example before, but the idea is religion is essentially like a ladder whereby if we do certain things, we'll get closer to God. If we fulfill this commandment, if we do this thing, if we're able to act in this way, then we can climb the ladder towards God. And the reason why religion is so harmful and so wrong and so counterproductive and so exhausting is because there's always someone higher up on the ladder than us. And when we see them, we feel like God is always out of reach. But the the, the tragic thing about that ladder of religion is there's always somebody lower on the ladder and there's always someone we can look down on and we can say well at least we're doing better than that person at least we're better than that person when it comes to achieving whatever it is that we need to achieve and here's what the gospel says the gospel says you're all on the first rung every single one of us and that's okay Because Jesus has come so that he lives the perfect life. You know, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, he he says the Sermon on the Mount, brilliant ethical teaching. Christians and non-Christians alike go, wow, what amazing ethical teaching. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we could just live a little bit more like his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? And then he says at the end, therefore be perfect as your holy father in heaven is perfect. Does anyone read that and go, nope, not going to happen. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is setting us up for the cross. He's setting us up for grace. This is why you need to read the Gospels in the entirety, the narrative of the Gospels and then beyond with Acts and the understanding of what the cross is all about. He's setting us up for the fact that none of us is perfect. And so therefore, those in the world who have very little, who feel poor in the eyes of the world, straight away you got to the top rung of the ladder. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Those who might feel like you've got it all together and you're higher up the ladder and you're able to achieve certain things in certain ways, you feel better than everyone else. The gospel says you are not even close to the perfection of Jesus. You have to be able to rely on his grace and on his mercy. And so those that don't have it together are rich in the kingdom of God. They are given everything, the entirety of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So we have to understand the gospel. If we want to get good at this in our church, we need to understand the gospel better. Second thing we need to do is we need to spend time in the glory of God. We need to pursue and to prioritise the glory of God because that's the key to this whole passage. James says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. If you understand glory you'll be able to live a life that doesn't show favoritism. Imagine that we're sitting in church and someone famous comes and sits next to you. For those who even know who he is, Professor Green sits next to you. Or David Beckham, somebody of that nature, sits next to you. And they're sat next to you for the entire of this. Do you think you'd be able to listen to anything I'm saying? Do you think you might be distracted the whole way? This Probably, I would be anyway. I remember when we had the mayor visit last Easter. I wasn't really thinking about Easter. I was thinking about the fact I've got the mayor next to me and we have to look after him and we've got to do certain things for him and he needs a photo shoot with certain people. It's a nightmare, absolute nightmare. Never do it again. Anyway, although, obviously, lovely guy. Um, <clears throat> imagine then you've got two famous, sitting, famous people sitting next to you during the service and then imagine during the worship, Jesus shows up, all right, in all his glory, on his throne and he sat right here. There's visions of it in Revelations. There's light shafts coming from it. It's the most glorious thing. Do you think you'll be thinking about the famous people either side of you? Probably not. I think you'll have your eyes transfixed on the person of Jesus. It's what Luke was singing in that prophetic song in the worship. God, would you just fix our eyes on you? 
the key to this, the whole thing is about lifting our eyes to Jesus, sat glorious on the heavenly throne. There's a beautiful um, passage in Romans 12, and I'll end with this, where uh, Romans 1 to 11 Paul is essentially talking about the gospel and it's the kind of things that I've been talking about here. The fact that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God and yet because of Jesus, we are in the family of God. We become part of the family of God. And then he's, he's doing all this and then he ends with this doxology, which is again what Luke started with in the worship. And he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how his past beyond tracing out. Essentially, he can't stop himself worshipping. It's like Jesus on the throne turns up and he can't stop talking talking about Jesus. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then this bit is the key here. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The only way we're able to do this is if we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that only happens when we enter the glory in the presence of God. When we have our eyes transfixed on who Jesus is on the throne. That's why in Revelation there's this beautiful passage. And it says this, after this I looked... And there before me was a great... Again, we sang this this morning. Luke, it's almost like you knew my sermon. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Understand the gospel. Who sits on the throne, understand the glory of Jesus and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. We need to be glorious in the way that we treat people. We need to be glorious in the way that we look out for people. How do we do it? We understand the gospel. We lift our eyes to Jesus. We see him seated on the throne. And when we do that, we realise that we are all made in his image, in his likeness. We carry God's presence with us.